Welcome to episode 43 of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. I'm Stephanie Von Lanke, and my co-host Steve Seidman will join me shortly. In today's episode, we get back to the allegations of sexual misconduct against the former CDS. We discuss the NATO defense ministerial, but also the United States' return to multilateralism and what we might expect in the future from operations in Afghanistan to the Iran nuclear deal. Our feature interviews are with Lieutenant Colonel Jamie Phillips, who is currently commanding op presence in Mali, and Brigadier General Pete Fessler, Deputy Director of Operations at the NORAD headquarters. At the very end of the episode, we have Steve's R&R segment. Thank you for listening. Stephanie, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Although reading week is over, <laughs> back in the classroom, it's certainly a nice change of pace. And I think the CDSN is pretty busy as well as these days. Uh, are we not, Steve? There's lots of stuff to plug and promote. Yes, there is. The first thing is we have our summer institute. It's going to take place in August. It will be online. So we're making some changes to it. I've been talking to a lot of people who've had experience with these virtual seminars to try to figure out how to make it work. Uh, but the idea of the summer institute is to bring together relatively junior people in academia. So that's advanced graduate students, junior professors, relatively junior policy officers, relatively junior military officers, relatively junior journalists together for a week-long experience where we present cutting-edge ideas, have them share their perspectives of the problems that Canada faces from each community's different viewpoints. So that way we sort of build bridges and uh, understand better how, how the different segments of the defense and security community think about these things. Uh, if you go to the CDSN website, you'll be able to find the, the advertisement for it. It's either cheap or free, depending on one's professional development resource budget one has. So that's the, the first thing. The second thing is on March 22nd, we're going to have our capstone. Well, we had this last year at the Canadian Forces College, literally the day before everything started to shut down. I was actually flying home from Toronto when we got the news about Tom Hanks and the NBA. And the capstone is an effort to bring together the best presentations from all the CDSN's partners across Canada over the previous year. And so we tend to want to focus on young hotshots. And we had some really good presentations last year. They're really uh, thought-provoking and, and helped to provide a, some idea of, of what is cutting-edge research communicated to a, a public audience, not just to experts. And the third thing is, is the deadline is uh, next week is that we have a postdoc competition where we're trying to get a, a junior scholar a chance to spend a year hanging out with uh, one of our research centers in the CDSN to mentor them and to give them a chance to get some research done in a collaborative environment. So for instance, Queens, you have hosted uh, one of our postdocs. How's that gone? It's been an incredible experience. I've just been amazed at how much research progress uh, Dr. Lena Tamsedo has managed to, to do uh, in this past year with uh, COVID restrictions and everything, but she's breezed through all of her interviews. She's doing a project on the mentorship of women in the Canadian Armed Forces, and there's a practical component as well to her research where she is uh, seeking to design a mentorship program based on the evidence collected as part of a research project. And if you're, of course, curious to hear more about uh, Dr. Tamsedo's research, we'll have the opportunity to, to discuss it further uh, on Battle Rhythm because I'm interviewing her this week, actually. So in, in the next few episodes, we'll have her interview. And a lot's happened since we last talked during episode uh, 42, when we were recording the whole story surrounding sexual misconduct allegations against former CDS uh, General Jonathan Vance were, were emerging. And since then, there have been interviews, there have been testimonies, and there have been hearings. So do you have a, an updated perspective on the whole Vance issue? Sure. Uh, you know, the fact that Mercedes Stevenson was able to get the main person in this, uh, you know, not, not Jonathan Vance, but the, the, the woman who was in this relationship with Vance, Major Brennan, on TV this weekend was really striking. I, I watched the interview. She was very compelling. The story is not just a one-off kind of joke kind of thing, but a, a long pattern 
that is, is quite convincing that there was that the CDS engaged in inappropriate behavior. Brandon made it clear that it was known not just to Vance, but to other people. So there have been questions raised about what did the rest of the command staff know and whether they know it. So I think the, the first thing I want to say about this is that well, when we talk about civil, civilian control of the military, one of the key elements of that is the media. If the media does their job, then, then, then it makes it possible for the people in government to do their job in managing the military. And so Mercedes Stevenson, Amanda Connolly, and their colleagues have done an amazing job of covering this story. There's not a lot of people in the Canadian media community doing defense stuff. And I think that Mercedes Stevenson probably doesn't get enough credit for the number of stories she breaks that are very impactful because I don't think people take TV as seriously as they take newspapers. I think that old prejudice still is still there. I think there's probably a little bit of sexism to it as well. But She's broken the story and it's causing this government to face a, a major crisis. And it's going to force everybody involved to take this issue more seriously than they would have otherwise. So I, I, I want to mention that. I also wanted to mention that I thought, you know, the, the Minister of National Defense, uh, Sai Jian, was and before the Defense Committee. And they, the Defense Committee was pretty tough on him, I think. They're they are really pointing out sort of the strangeness that Vice Admiral Mark Norman was suspended within days of accusations uh, that were then investigated, whereas Van was not suspended or anything happened to Vance when uh, Minister Sai John got reports in 2018. He, he keeps on talking about uh, he gave it to the proper authorities to investigate. And I found that answer, just as the committee did, wildly unsatisfying. I'm not going to ask you to speak on this because you're going to be actually testifying later this week to the committee. And I know that you're working through your testimony. But I found this wildly inappropriate or wildly unsatisfactory because, yes, if there is a person who's in, you know under you who's been in, uh, accused of something, you hand it over to the investigators to look into it. But that doesn't absolve your responsibility to you look into it yourself. That is, it's not just uh, an administrative post far down the chain. This is the the guy running the Canadian Armed Forces who's who's standing up and 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 leading this operation honor, which is supposed to improve the condition of women in the in the armed forces. And as a, a political effort, one would need to try to get a little more information so that way one can advise the prime minister on whether to keep this guy around. Again, as I mentioned last time, Vance at this point in time in 2018 had been CDS for three years. And so at any point in time, they could have said, you know, you've, you've done your time here. It's time to move on and found somebody who did not have such a allegations made against them. And they didn't do that. And so when he talks about referring to the proper authorities, he is the proper authority, and so is the prime minister. They're the ones who are in the top of the chain of command. And to say that they just handed over to an ombudsman or an investigator is not satisfactory, that there was still responsibility in the minister's office and in the cabinet. And so I found those answers to be unsatisfying. What was interesting was in the aftermath of Brendan's testimony, you saw both uh, Paul Madison, who used to head the Canadian Navy, and Mike Day, who used to head Can Special Operations, both come out and basically say that the retired officers need to speak out on this and, not, and refer not just to, the, to themselves, but others that, that they believe her and that there should be some, you know, there should be action taken that, that this should not be discounted as being just a minor tiff or minor squabble, that, that this is a very serious issue. And so that was, I think, an important development of the past week since we last talked. And the, the investigation is going to continue in part because people like Mercedes Stevenson and Amanda Connolly, and I think I saw a story by Elite Berthium also pushing this forward. So it, this is going to keep on going on until you know, the investigation rolls out both by the investigative service and by the continuing this conversation in the defense committee. Not to engage in a counterfactual, but this issue could have been uh, broadcast internationally had Vance been selected to be the, the chairman of the military committee at NATO. I know that his name was floated around. He ended up not getting the nod, but uh, his career could have had even greater longevity with this move to Brussels, presumably. Yeah, what was interesting about that is, is that there was a lot of criticism made by the conservatives that the government hadn't put Vance forward for the chairman of the military committee. And now I think the liberals are probably breathing a sigh of relief that they hadn't. It could be, you know, maybe this was in the back of their minds. I, who knows? But yeah, the, this, this could have been a bigger story, right? but it's going to be big enough and it's going it's, it's, it's to, and it, it deserves all the attention it gets here. Because again, this was the guy who was the face of the campaign to improve the condition of women. And so we now have uh, Marie Deschamps speaking in front of parliament, talking about how the government ignored her recommendations to develop an outside body to deal with these issues because that one could not trust the military to handle it on its own. And I think these events suggest that she was right then and she's right now. Yeah, they did stand up the uh, Sexual Misconduct Response Center, but her comments served a pretty scathing critique of how it was set up and the design of that organization. Uh, she mentioned that it wasn't reflective of what she had recommended when she had asked for an independent organization to, to receive uh, allegations and reports. 
You mentioned NATO. Let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, last week was the North Atlantic Council's defense ministerial meeting, which is when the defense ministers of all the NATO countries get together and try to push the agenda of NATO forward. So what did they discuss at this latest ministerial? Yeah, so it's another ministerial that was held online and with the new Biden administration picking up some foreign policy momentum, an issue we'll talk about a bit later. I'm sure NATO allies and NATO as a headquarters uh, were breathing a sigh of relief. Even with Trump out of the White House, though, burden sharing was still on the agenda. So maybe that's worth uh, highlighting from the get-go because Canada got mentioned. But just uh, as an aside, I do look forward to the next summit. They're, they're planning one in Brussels with uh, President Biden joining other NATO heads of state. I'm not sure if uh, we'll get an invite. <laughs> so I'm not sure if this event will be held in person at the headquarters, but I'm sure that we'll be able to notice a very different body language compared to when Trump visited the, the new NATO HQ for the mini summit in Brussels shortly after his inauguration. On the downside, though, there, there probably won't be an SNL sketch about the summit. I think <laughs> all NATO experts worldwide were really happy to see uh, NATO featured on, on SNL. But anyway, the, the SecGen uh, highlighted that allies continue to spend more on defense. So typically at these ministerials, or you see that at the summit too, the secretary general just tallies the collective defense spending progress. And so mm -hmm. that's an extra 190 billion US dollars since 2014, the, the year that Russia invaded Crimea. So not 2016 with the election of Trump, mm -hmm. but 2014 with this change in the perception of, of threat. And now nine allies are expected to spend 2% on defense compared to only three in 2014. And you know that Canada is not one of them, but it is inching closer very, very slowly because of small increases in defense spending, yes, but also a contracting economy due to COVID. And I think you've said that before, Steve, mm -hmm. that we're going to see more allies meeting that threshold, not necessarily because there's a huge increase in defense spending, but because economies are being affected by, by the pandemic. And Canada has never really been a huge fan of the 2% rule anyway. This is a recurring theme on the podcast, but I don't think that Trudeau or any other prime minister for that matter would push forcefully for meeting that target by the agreed NATO deadline. But what was interesting about this ministerial is that maybe it's resulting in a small victory for Canada in terms of potentially broadening the alliance's understanding of burden sharing. And this comes through one of the Secretary General's proposals. He mentioned a plan to compensate countries that deploy troops on allied territory in support of collective defense and deterrence goals. So that doesn't mean deployments to missions like Afghanistan or Iraq, but for instance, Canada's deployment to Latvia was cited as an example. As things stand right now, as you know, the NATO rule costs lie where they fall. And that means that countries must provide the troops, assets, and money for the contributions that they make to NATO activities and, and operations. So that's a bit different from, from the UN. NATO doesn't subsidize costs. It doesn't transfer money to individual countries in exchange for contributions made, like you would see in, in a UN setting, for instance. But the, the Secretary General's proposal would offer up essentially common funding to support NATO deployments like those in the Baltics and Poland, because that happens on allied territory. Uh, so that was the rationale offered. So anything presumably under the banner of enhanced forward presence would then be eligible under this proposal for receiving NATO common funding to offset the contributions made by individual allies. And so maybe make burden sharing appear fairer because it's not just pegged on the contribution that uh, countries make in terms of their overall defense spending, but of contributions that they make in support of alliance goals. So I thought that was interesting based on our, our past discussions of, of this issue and, and burden sharing. And I know you are a very vocal critique of the 2% rule. So any hot takes on this burden sharing proposal? Well, I'm just breathing a sigh of relief. You know, I think that the important thing about NATO is simply that it's there for more than just having arguments about 2%. <laughs> and so the idea that they're actually thinking about other ways to talk about burden sharing by itself is good. I think the idea that the agenda is more than just burden sharing is good. Trying to figure out how to manage all these different things. I missed it. Was there anything about NATO and China? Because that's what everyone wants to talk, you know, everybody 
yeah. in Canada wants to talk about is NATO and China. I just don't see a role for NATO vis-a-vis -vis China, at least not in the Pacific, maybe in terms of trying to keep China out of, out of, out of Europe. But was there, did China come up at all? Yeah, China was uh, on the agenda. It's mostly about how NATO should engage in political consultations. It's most about intra-alliance conversations about the, the dual challenge of having a uh, Russia that's not friendly to NATO and a more overtly hostile China. And so similar to what we saw in the, the NATO 2030 document, uh, you see China being mentioned and space being dedicated in the document to talk about China, but mostly through the prism of political consultation mm -hmm. and alliance discussion. And for the alliance to serve as a forum for deeper political engagement and also to resolve and overcome some of the intra-alliance disagreements that we've seen, uh, ranging from tensions between individual NATO allies to observed uh, democratic backsliding and this realization, which ultimately motivated the SecGen to call on a document like NATO 2030, that maybe the, the military side of the house is in better order than the political side of the house. And so how do you increase the cohesion of NATO, streamline its decision-making processes, and enhance the quality of allied consultation in the face of, of new newer challenges? Mm -hmm. So that was reflected certainly in the agenda and mm -hmm. as well ongoing missions and operations. But I found interesting was uh, for NATO mission in Iraq, this intention to expand the troop presence there quite mm -hmm. significantly. Having been there two years ago, I think that it'll probably need new real estate if it's envisioning such a, a big increase. NMI was in three locations that the NATO mission in Iraq was in Baghdad, Ismaya, and Taji. And so it'll be interesting to see exactly how the NATO mission would expand, either in terms of its geographical scope or in other ways. But the justification given is that the Islamic State still represents a sizable threat and that the uh, Iraqi security forces need more assistance in order to counter it. So despite all of the uncertainty surrounding NMI last year, especially after the assassination of, of Soleimani in January of 2020, it seems that NATO is going to be doubling down in Iraq. And on Afghanistan too, it's been a challenging political environment for NATO because Trump had made a series of, of commitments around the Doha agreement and the intra-Afghan peace talks, and NATO was, was a bit sidelined throughout this entire process and didn't have much leverage to have its voice heard. But so long as, you know, the U.S. was proceeding apace with troop withdrawals and with reductions, it was difficult to envisage NATO really being able to keep up with its commitment over the long term. Without a U.S. military presence, I just don't know if NATO can continue to, to operate. So not to uh, to have too uh, long-winded of a discussion about this, but I think it's unlikely that Biden will fully reverse Trump's decision, not only because it might interfere or inject new uncertainty into the the uh, intra-Afghan peace process, but because I don't think Biden wants U.S. troops to stay there any more than Trump did. It's the timeline that might change, and the timeline will also affect NATO activities. So I think what we're likely to see here, and maybe this plays into the discussions that were happening last week during the ministerial, is that, you know, if Biden sticks to closer monitoring of the conditions under which that withdrawal continues to happen, then it's bringing the U.S. a bit closer to the NATO approach, which was really a conditions-based approach. Anyway, so uh, anything to add on, on uh, NATO's ongoing operations in, in Iraq or Afghanistan or in terms of the U.S.'s renewed role within the NATO context? Well, I, th I think you cover most of it. I think the interesting thing right now is the the status of the United States, which is that you're not going to see everything be fully embraced by the Biden administration. That yes, we're seeing a more multilateral turn. They've rejoining the WHO, rejoining uh, the Paris Accords. But I honestly don't expect the United States to really try to ramp up and have more troops in Afghanistan. I think that's something that Biden has always been pushing against. It was very famously the target of McChrystal's wrath, General McChrystal's wrath in 2009, when Biden as vice president was opposing sending lots more troops to Afghanistan. So I just don't see that happening. It may be that the decisions that Trump made to try to get out of Afghanistan and other places may limit what Biden is likely to do. He might have been less willing to cut, but I don't think he's going to be 
more willing to add, if that makes any sense. I don't think the United States is going to be adding lots more troops to a place like Afghanistan. I do find it strange to hear this discussion about sending more troops to Iraq because right now there's still a pandemic. So what are they going to do? And I'm not exactly sure what else is going to be happening in the future in, Af in Iraq. What do we want these trainers to do? And is that is that really the important thing right now? Because isn't the real challenge in Iraq less military training and more about the politics, which these troops will not be able to handle? But the fact that the United States is signaling a return to multilateralism is good news in itself. I guess it's good news today because the, the prime minister and the president are, are meeting. So it's good news for, for Canada, presumably. But as you mentioned before, whether it's on the NATO front or when it comes to other international organizations and agreements from the Paris Accord to the WHO, the U.S. is signaling it's again ready to invest in international institutions and in multilateralism. So is there a specific international agreement or an international organization that you're focused on in terms of looking at a shift in U.S. foreign policy behavior? I think the most important thing is the problem of the day, which is COVAX. So that the fact that the Biden administration is getting back, is entering that agreement and will be providing vaccines that will go to the rest of the world, parts of the rest of the world, is important. We can't look too far beyond the, the most important crisis of the day. I think the next thing that, that I care most about is climate change, because that is the, the most important crisis of our time. But first things first, I think we need to focus on uh, getting things back to any kind of semblance of normalcy, which means getting the world vaccinated. Yeah, I agree. And then the, the Iran nuclear deal was talked about as well, but that's a bit more complicated because it's not as simple as throwing money at the problem. I know for COVAX, President Biden pledged $4 billion. Mm. With the Paris Accord, the U.S. can make commitments and back them up with investments. But the Iran nuclear deal is in a tough spot right now because with Trump's withdrawal from the JCPOA, one can argue that Iran suffered diplomatic humiliation in that case. And even if Iran was seen as largely compliant with the deal until 2019, the relationship went south really quickly over Iraq in 2019. Uh, and again, with I mentioned the assassination of, of Soleimani in January. So that also played a part in souring the relationship further. But we're at the stage now where leaders on both sides have signaled they are ready for goodwill gestures, but no one is willing to make the first move. The U.S. wants full compliance before anything else happens, and Iran wants the lifting of sanctions first, even compensation or reparations, I guess, from the damage that was inflicted by the uh, unilateral sanctions imposed by the United States. So it's difficult to see how they'll overcome the impasse, but it was a difficult negotiation or, or bargaining situation back then, too, when uh, the Obama administration got together with Iran through a series of rather secret negotiations that ultimately led to the JCPOA. So I think I think there is hope, but it's a bit harder as a problem of multilateral diplomacy in this case, because it's only the U.S. that withdraws. It's just a, a sort of a bilateral standoff to see who's going to cave first. Yeah, I mean, I do, I do think that's a really important agreement to focus on is how to figure this one out. I think that the problem that you mentioned is that the United States bargaining leverage is much less than it used to be because it no longer has the support of the international community. It no longer has, you know, the, all the, the key members playing a role on the same side. And so it's going to be very hard to extract stuff out of Iran. On the other hand, the Iranians have not enjoyed the past four years, and so they might want to throw Biden a bone. I was talking to a, a nuclear expert last week about something else, but this came up, and, and she mentioned that Iran really in 2000. Uh, you know, 15, 16, when the deal was made, was really agreeing to something that, that they wanted to agree to because their nuclear program wasn't really that far along. And it was saving them some embarrassment and saving them some some real effort and investments they would have to make to make more progress. So it could be that it's still in, in, in the interest of, of Iran to make a deal. And so maybe there's something to play with with that. But it is really hard because the United States, through the Trump administration, kicked away a lot of its leverage over a variety of issues, not just this one. And so it's going to be hard to come back and, and figure out a way to get Iran to the bargaining table, given that the United States has simply less credibility and less leverage than it did four years ago, five years ago, six years ago. Well, we covered a lot of ground today, Steve. <laughs> we did. We did indeed. And we have uh, two feature interview guests this week from different ends of the partnership spectrum. 
Well, I had a great time interviewing Lieutenant Colonel Jamie Phillips. She's currently deployed to, to Mali under Operation Presence, which is the Canadian Armed Forces contribution to the UN peacekeeping mission there. And then we have a guest interviewer, uh, Dr. Andrea Sharon, interviewed Brigadier General Pete Fessler, who's the Deputy Director of Operations of NORAD. So I'm really happy that we have two back-to-back interviews to feature this week on the podcast. Yes, we're going to be doing this more and more in the future, I think, relying on our co-directors of the CDSN to be interviewing the people that they know in the business because they're better prepared to ask questions. Andrea Sharon is pretty much the NORAD expert in Canada. So have her ask the director, the director of operations at NORAD, a much better person to be asking those questions. So uh, we'll be trying to do a little bit more of that in the future. And I'm we're struggling to figure out what my R&R picks for this week are, but I'll, I'll figure it out by the time I have to record it. Again, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Stephanie. Have a great week and I'll talk to you soon. Lieutenant Colonel Jamie Phillips is currently commanding Op Presence in Mali, the CAF's contribution to MINUSMA. Colonel Phillips is an artillery officer with operational experience in Afghanistan with ISAF. She is also a member of the Order of Military Merit, and she is joining us today from Bamako. Thank you very much for joining me today, Colonel Phillips. May I first ask you what your normal battle rhythm is like right now, if there is such a thing? So there's sort of a sort of a battle rhythm. It does vary, though. My job is the U3 Chief of Information Operations here at uh, Minusma. I work in Minusma's force headquarters, which is uh, located in Bamako. Unfortunately, like a lot of people right now, due to COVID, most of our meetings are being held online. But there are still opportunities for me, depending on what the, the schedule is that week or that month, to move around Mali, whether it's to collaborate with my teammates in the various sector headquarters or... Sometimes I get to facilitate translation for some of the senior leadership. I get to participate in different operations or outreach opportunities with some of the local population. There's a bit of a rhythm, but every day is definitely different and exciting. When it comes to Canada's contribution to peace operations in Mali, I think folks listening will be mostly familiar with the medical evacuation capability that the CAF provided to MINUSMA in 2018 and 19. But since then, the CAF contingent has continued its involvement. But maybe you could start by providing just a quick overview of what that entails in terms of key mission tasks. Sure. So we've uh, drawn down from that 2019 contingent. Now we're uh, just a small force of, of MSOs here. And really the main focus of force here and, and of MINUSMA's mandate is to help enforce the peace accords, to help protect civilians from some violence per- perpetrated by terrorist groups, and to help stabilize and reestablish state authority in the region. There's also a bit of a, an addition onto that in the most recent reporting. You'll, you'll probably notice that since the coup in August, there's now a roadmap in place for elections uh, being held 18-month timeline starting from August. Excellent. And this is your first deployment with the UN, if I'm not mistaken. Otherwise, you have worked in the NATO context and and also in the US. Can you compare working in a NATO setting with your UN experience right now? Sure. Yeah, this is my first uh, UN experience. It was always something that I was interested in when I joined. It was pre 9-11, and I sort of expected I would mostly be doing UN missions, based on my understanding. Then obviously things sort of changed there. I found my NATO experience to be a little bit easier, if I can say that. I've got finger quotations uh, mm-hmm. happening. So it was a more tactical level. You know, your my tasks were really straightforward and they were exactly what I had trained to do as an artillery officer. So obviously I'm not saying, you know, that a counterinsurgency is, is a simple thing by any means. But when you're operating that environment as an artillery troop commander, your job is to provide fire support. So it's like pretty straightforward. You know what your job is when you wake up in the morning. Whereas by comparison, I'm, I'm seeing that in a UN setting, you're, in my case, working at a higher level headquarters. You are mixing with civilians and, and high level professionals, as well as military people uh, from different countries. You're working on tasks you know, that are quite specialized to do with you know, stability and you know, peace building. And, and we don't necessarily learn about specifically in our military training. What we rely on is the experience that you've picked up over the years, you know, critical thinking, operational planning, problem solving. That's that's where the military training and the military experience lends itself really well to UN deployments. But for me, sometimes it is more challenging to try to figure out what I should be doing and what the best thing I can do situation. That's interesting. And since we're talking about UN operations and and comparing that to different settings, I also wanted to touch on 
the topic of the LC initiative. Uh, Canada has been a champion of the LC initiative. We had General Lise Bourgon on the podcast recently who spoke to Canada's contributions through the lens of the women peace and security agenda. So let me ask you this as a follow-up to that conversation. From your experience and what you've seen through your tours, what changes when more women are deployed to peace operations? And here, I'm sure you could also point to examples from your tour in Afghanistan, a very different operational context, but I believe you were the first female artillery troop commander deployed to Kandahar. I was, which as a good friend of mine would say, that and uh, Tooney can get you a cup of coffee at the Tartans. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, it was, both of them were really interesting experiences. I don't know, you know, necessarily if it's just related to, to gender, but I think like in any of our operations or, you know, businesses or government departments or anything, diversity makes everything better. You just get, you know, different backgrounds, different perspectives, different experiences, and those result in a better end product. In my opinion, you just, you enrich the experience overall and you get better results. And in terms of role modeling, do you think there is something there too? I'm thinking being the first woman to do anything, certainly that's noticed either alongside allied or partner countries who may not have that representation or when you're dealing with stakeholders from the host nation? I guess it can go either either really well or really badly. If you're the first, you can be a big help or a big hindrance. No, I hope so. I hope that my presence here can, you know, show that it's something that's certainly not only feasible, but I mean, I think it's going, it's going really well, I think. And I found the same thing on my deployment to Afghanistan, you know, it was 2007. So it was it's quite a long time ago now, and the situation for a lot of the NATO countries at that time was not gender integrated yet, whereas now it is, but it's still, you know, there's still at sort of the, the stages that maybe Canada was in, yeah, in the 90s or the early 2000s. So we've, you know, we've, we've always been a little bit ahead on that gender integration piece, as far as I've seen, and I think that's it's the same in the UN context. There's also, there are more countries in the UN mission than there were in the NATO mission, so I'm you know, crossing paths with more people from different places, different cultures, different backgrounds. So I, I hope that I'm setting a good example and showing that it's something that's not only, you know, possible, but, but advantageous. And I suppose a, a spin-off question to that, because you mentioned the cultural piece, I'm wondering if there's anything unique that Canada brings to the table when it comes to UN operations. We know that Canada is known historically for its contribution to, to UN peacekeeping, but from what you've seen so far on your tour, is there something that Canada brings to the table that others don't, or do we have a bit of a comparative advantage in certain areas? I'm not sure if it's necessarily specific to peace operations, but I do think that the fact that we have been, you know, gender integrated for such a long time now compared to a lot of countries, I think that's advantageous because we, you know, we have a lot of really strong candidates uh, for some of these deployments. We've had a lot of women be task force commanders recently and things like that. So it's got to be a good thing. I'm not yeah. sure if there's anything sort of quintessentially Canadian, but I do think that, you know, if you go with that sort of Canadian stereotype of, you know, humility and sort of self-deprecating and you know, gets along with everybody, you know, some, some of those are stereotypes for sure. But also I think that sometimes we can bridge a gap. We're bilingual for one, you know, we show up and we, we can already talk to twice as many people as, as uh, you know, some of the other troop contributing countries, which is great. And we have experience, you know, we're, we're a huge country, but we've got a small population, you know, we've got a small military, but we do a lot of, uh, you know, individual training. I think we've got really interesting uh, characteristics and, and qualities. And I think we do fit in well in this kind of environment. That's interesting. And certainly something that resonates the linguistic aspect to that. And I know you're fluent in three languages, so you can bring even the Spanish to the table. <laughs> Which has been great here. Yeah, that's been a huge, been a huge advantage for me. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, last question here. Uh, you're deployed to Mali and also doing a part-time doctoral program through RMC. May I ask what your project is about and why you chose to write a dissertation at this stage in your career? So that was an accident. I did not mean <laughs> to deploy at the same time as I was doing my PhD. No, I just, I really have enjoyed so since my bachelor I went to the military college to my bachelor's degree but since then all of my degrees have been done through distance learning programs and I, I like doing that in my off hours I find it really interesting I like to read I like to learn I like to study I like to just keep keep always learning new things so there was after I finished my my master's and my staff college I just so that was sort of the next logical step I had wanted to do it previously but RMC up until a few years ago didn't offer a program that didn't have a residency requirement so I you know I didn't want to take time away from my military career it's that's very important to me too but I was interested in increasing my education so just uh, it was an easy an easy answer for me to to uh, to start that program I'm at the stage now where so I 
I've completed my coursework and this year I'm meant to be studying for my comprehensive exams, which I am failing at. I am deployed and on a leave of absence for the year, thankfully, which RMC is also really great about. It's sort of one of the advantages of, you know, I think doing a doing a degree like that through a, an institution that's so familiar with the military lifestyle. And then once I've completed my comprehensive exams, I will start on my dissertation, which is to do with um, women in senior leadership positions at the United Nations. And I saw that you had uh, books in your room. So you <laughs> plan on studying for your comps while you're deployed, don't you? <laughs> I had big plans. I had big plans and they have uh, not come to fruition so far, but there's still six months left of the tour. I could, I could still turn it around. Six months is plenty of time. Colonel Phillips, <laughs> thank you very much for spending time with me on Battle Rhythm. Good luck with the end of your tour and stay safe. Thank you. Welcome everyone to this new episode of Battle Rhythm for the Canadian Security and Defence Network. I have the distinct pleasure of interviewing Brigadier General Fessler, who is the Deputy Director of Operations for NORAD in Colorado Springs at the NORAD and NORTHCOM Command Centre. As the Deputy Director, he's responsible for supporting the execution of aerospace warning, aerospace control, and maritime warning for North America, which includes the Canadian, Alaskan, and continental United States of the North American Aerospace Defense Command regions. He is a decorated F-15 and F-22 pilot and is a graduate of both the Naval Postgraduate School and the National War College. Welcome, Brigadier General Fessler. Thank you, ma'am. Good to see you again. So being the Deputy Director of Operations at NORAD in Colorado Springs, and it's at this NORAD and U.S. NORTHCOM Command Center, can you give us sort of insight into what you do on a day-to-day -day basis and maybe a description of the command center itself there at Peterson Air Force Base? Before I get into that, let me talk a little bit about the, the difference between the two commands. And, and you mentioned that they are, in fact, two separate commands. Most people don't realize that, at least south of the border. So uh, two distinct commands, NORAD, as you mentioned, a unique binational command, not simply cooperation between militaries or nations, but a true binational command where the officers and enlisted folks in the, that command are interchangeable. They work directly for each other. My boss, for example, is a two-star Canadian, and I follow his orders exactly the same way as if it was a U.S. two-star uh, general officer. In fact, the general officer that shut down the U.S. airspace after the 9-11 attacks was a Canadian officer sitting up inside of Cheyenne Mountain here in Colorado Springs. So it's a really unique command. The mission you mentioned, aerospace warning, warning against uh, air and missile attack against North America a aerospace control defending against an air attack against North America. And then finally, the maritime warning, warning both countries about attacks from the sea. NORTHCOM, on the other hand, again, a separate command located at the same location, sharing the same commander but having separate staffs, is a U.S. geographic combatant command. And they're tasked specifically with maritime defense of the United States, ballistic missile defense of the United States against rogue missile threats, and uh, what we call DISCA, or Defense Support to Civil Authorities. That's essentially the military helping out the civilian government in time of crisis, think disaster response. There's actually a third leg in this that, that I want to bring up, and that's the uh, Canadian Joint Operations Command. And that's roughly equivalent to the Canadian equivalent of NORTHCOM. They do the same type of missions, plus quite a few more, actually. CJOC has a lot more authorities than, than uh, NORTHCOM does. So now back to your question on the command center. Command center uh, is manned 24-7. 365 days a year. There's about 18 or so watch standers in there at any given time. They sit in that room monitoring feeds globally. They're displayed on dozens of screens around them. And their job is to make sense of the data that they see on those screens and then execute their missions. And those missions might include waking up the defense minister, the MND or the PM or POTUS in the middle of the night to tell him that an attack is, is underway. That's a lot of pressure on those guys to make that type of a decision. In fact, they actually made a similar decision on whether or not to wake up the four star a couple days ago when a couple Russian maritime patrol aircraft flew through the Alaska air defense identification zone. They were making exactly those type of things. What are, what are we seeing? What does it mean? Who do we need to inform? Do we need to execute our warning mission or our airspace control mission? So that's the type of missions that execute in there. And, and rather than talk about my role in that, I'd really like to focus on the fact that it's those guys year round sitting either in Cheyenne Mountain or in the basement of the headquarters at Building 2 
that are really looking out for all of us here in the United States and Canada. This summer, you penned a paper with General Retired O'Shaughnessy. He was the NORAD and U.S. NORTHCOM commander from 2018 to 2020. And you wrote about the need to harden the shield of homeland defense. I'm just curious, what prompted the writing of this paper, which is available on the Woodrow Wilson Center website? And what do you mean by hardening the shield? You and I have talked about this a couple times, I think, over the last several months. So the, the genesis of the paper was really a recognition of the fact that we needed to codify in writing the nature of the threat that we face here in North America and outline a way ahead. And we needed to do that in an unclassified venue so that everybody could understand exactly what it was that we're trying to do. You know, the reason we specifically chose the term hardening the shield as opposed to just building a shield is, first of all, we view ourselves as the shield for our two nations. But secondly, we wanted to make sure everybody understood that we have a shield today, that we are able to defend ourselves and provide warning in the manner that I discussed just a second ago. But we wanted to highlight the fact that as our peer competitors globally continue to increase their capability to, to create effects here in North America, we have to correspondingly create the capability to defend against those effects. So uh, an important note I want to bring up, and you mentioned it, that was written with our previous commander, General O'Shaughnessy, the commander here, uh, General Van Herp now, of both NORAD and NORTHCOM, has uh, slightly adapted the way we talk about the shield and the way we think about it. But by and large, the concepts remain consistent. We're still talking about the core concepts of needing domain awareness to be able to understand what's happening around us. We use the term in the paper of JADC2. We've changed that to information dominance. So instead of talking about joint all domain command and control or north of the border pan domain command and control, it's more about information dominance. And in that we're talking about the effect that are created through those concepts or systems. And then the last one is decision superiority and that's providing decision space and options for national leaders to allow us to deter in competition, de-escalate in crisis and avoid conflict. And then if all that should fail and we find ourselves in conflict, be able to deny adversary objectives and defend ourselves. Thank you. Just following from that, can you sort of describe for me what role does NORAD play now for homeland defense? Or in Canadian terms, I think we generally talk about the defense of North America. And does NORAD or Canada and the U.S. need to do something fundamentally different to fit into this idea of information dominance? Yes, ma'am. That's a, that's a great question. So uh, to your initial point, you know, I'm a NORAD officer. I wear both flags on my uniform. So when I'm south of the border, I say homeland defense. When I'm north of the border, I say continental defense. It's, it's a matter of terminology, but the concepts are exactly the same. So let me start with this and say the U.S. and, and Canada have been cooperating on this defense relationship for over 60 years now. Nothing's changed on that. So we're still going to continue in that same NORAD relationship that we have today. So you're not going to see anything fundamentally change in the NORAD agreement or in what we do. But we do both need to move out in continuing to invest in a capability to defend ourselves, as I mentioned, against competitors globally who are increasing their capacity to harm us here in North America. And our first priority, as I mentioned just a second ago, is domain awareness. It is we have to first and foremost be able to understand what's happening in the approaches to North America. And that ranges from the seafloor all the way up to on orbit because our, our competitors are investing in capabilities in across all multiple domains. So that's where we're focused right now. I don't know that that's really something different but it is a need to continue investment and advance as the nature of the threat advances. Here in Canada, we've had a lot of news reports recently sort of speculating about what NORAD modernization is and isn't. Often it seems to be sort of synonymous with only the renewal of the North Warning System. What exactly should we be talking about in terms of NORAD modernization? You know, it's that talk about NORAD modernization is extending all the way up to the highest levels of government right now. In fact, the MND and the new Secretary of Defense had a discussion just a couple of days ago, and NORAD modernization was one of those topics of discussion. So let me first start off with saying right now, NORAD modernization is not new mission sets. It's not a change to the NORAD agreement. It's sticking with the fundamental arrangements we've had for for years and years. And it's much more than just the North warning system replacement, which is what I think some people think on the other end of that spectrum 
NORAD modernization means just replace the north warning system, which as you know was a replacement for the dew line prior to that. Although domain awareness is our highest priority and replacing the north warning system is part of NORAD modernization, it is just one part of it. It's not, it is not by itself what NORAD modernization means. So there are a lot of other efforts that are already underway that are directed toward modernization of NORAD. And those are including information dominance systems. So expanding our and improving our command and control capability. As you and I have spoken about before, we're spending a lot of time looking at machine learning, data analytics, and artificial intelligence to help us make sense of the data that our sensors are ingesting. We're trying to improve our communication capability, particularly in the high north, because it's right now we are very limited in our ability to command and control forces that are operating in the high north. Some investments already underway to improve infrastructure. In fact, at Anubic, where we're, Canadian government is investing money to extend the runway by another 3,000 feet to accept larger scale operations out of there. Right now, only the uh, Canadian Hornets can fly in and out of Anubic by, because of the short runway length. So quite a few things going on, and they're not just investment in infrastructure or hardware. We're also looking at the way we train, the way we exercise, the way our plans are written to defend ourselves. All of those things are encompassed in what we refer to as NORAD modernization. Great. It sounds, however, that with NORAD modernization, especially if you need and want more information, especially for domain awareness, it sounds like there might be implications for allies beyond Canada, maybe even industry. What might be their contributions? And does this mean that NORAD in the future might become more of than just a binational agreement. So let me start with the allied portion of this first. And, and obviously this is a this is a policy level decision. This is something that the PM and the president would need to talk about if we're talking about altering fundamentally what the NORAD agreement is. But I, I can say this, the NORAD agreement is strong. It works. We've had we've got a long history of successfully defending our continent here. We also have strong global relationships, bilateral and multilateral relationships, for example, with NATO, where we're both members of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Those relationships are already there. And right now, NORAD already cooperates with all of our allies and partners globally in order to get that information that we're talking about and understand what's happening well before it even reaches the uh, approaches to North America. In fact, we regularly share data directly with NATO command and control systems into NORAD command and control systems so we can understand what's happening in the European theater and take advantages of the things that they have there. Now, you also mentioned industry. Industry is going to be critical to NORAD modernization. Both Canadian industry and U.S. industry, we're already engaging with them to help us find what the state of the art is and what the state of possible is as we look at new capabilities to detect, track, identify, and provide warning of threats to our continent, and look at options to do better command and control and preserve that decision space, create that decision superiority that I mentioned earlier, that's necessary to successfully deter, de-escalate, and defend in, in a uh, crisis against peer adversaries or peer competitors. Thanks very much for that answer. Maybe I can ask you to reflect on uh, NORAD in the future. In 2018, NORAD celebrated 60th, its 60th anniversary. Where do you see NORAD perhaps 30 years from now? Well, I'll tell you, first off, I want to say that, that that celebration of the 60th anniversary was a pretty good party. Down here in Colorado Springs, we had the snowbirds fly over. We had past commanders in. It was a, it was a really enjoyable event. And I understand similar event occurred up in Winnipeg where you brought in the same past commanders and the CF-18s flew by. In fact, if you had a chance to see that 60th anniversary painted CF-18, that was an impressive airplane. And truly a, a beautiful airplane to look at. So, but you asked, what are we looking at moving forward? I don't know where the technology is going to take us. I don't, I don't really know what we're going to look like other than 60 years ago plus our two nations made a decision that neither one of us can defend ourselves on the continent alone. That it's going to take both of us working together. And they took that so seriously that they didn't just agree to cooperate. They built, again, what I mentioned earlier is a true binational command where we truly integrate and cooperate in the defense of our, our continent. I know that 30 years from now, looking forward, whoever replaces me and my the replacement of him and the replacement of her all the way out into the future, that individual is still going to work for a Canadian two-star. And that individual is still going to have a four-star commander that's probably on the U.S. side. 
and that underneath them are going to be Canadian airmen and soldiers and sailors and American airmen and soldiers and sailors all cooperating together to defend ourselves here on the continent because we know that's the only way we're going to be able to do that. I might have mentioned this to you before. I mentioned it in this in this interview. I wear both both flags on my uniform. I'll tell you, I'm, I'm extremely proud of that. There aren't a lot of people that put on a uniform every day and can truly say they defend the people of two nations. Uh, that's something I take great pride in. And I think most of the people that work down here have the same impression uh, of that. So I'd like to recognize, first of all, all the folks, both U.S. and Canadian, that are, that are working at this particular challenge. Again, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And say thanks for uh, your attention on this issue. And let me talk to you a little bit today. Brigadier General Fessler and to all of the personnel at NORAD headquarters, thank you very much for this interview. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you, ma'am. I've got three recommendations for this week's R&R segment that are a little different than usual particularly the first and the last. The first is Flora and Ulysses. It's on Disney Plus now. It's a new movie. It's a kid's movie about a girl who discovers a superpowered squirrel and the adventures that ensue from that. And it's just funny and it's delightful. And it, it the girl is into comic books. So there's all kinds of comic book references. And, you know, uh, yeah, I don't have a kid in the house anymore, but I think it's good for folks who do have kids in the house. It's very family friendly, but it was just a fun film, a nice, pleasant diversion. Made me laugh, made my wife laugh. We enjoyed it. So that, that's one recommendation. The second is I'm in the middle of watching Good Hair. It's a documentary that Chris Rock made about the challenge of black women, black men too, but mostly black women, and how do they have hair that they consider to be good hair. And I hadn't realized how this is a billion dollar industry and this is women spending lots and lots of money uh, to reach a cultural standard. And it's funny because it's Chris Rock and he's asking good questions and he's, it's very engaging. And it's also raises some awareness about some things. Like I, I, I've heard before about one of the challenges to recruitment in the United States and Canada is to have Black Americans, Black Canadians serve in various parts of the country where they cannot find someone to take care of their hair. And... This is a major challenge, and this this documentary really provides a good context for understanding that challenge. And the third bit of uh, R&R is something completely different. I got to go skiing yesterday. I went to Mount St. Marie, which is about an hour and a half north of Ottawa. And I got to tell you, it was desperately needed. I haven't gone skiing at all this year. I've gone da I've done cross-country skiing, and I've done snowshoeing, but to just get out and ski, go downhill, and have you know the speed and slopes, just being able to create rides for myself, it was just fantastic. So if you can get out, it's a great ski area. They've got COVID rules that provide for safety. I think skiing is the ultimate COVID sport because you're wearing masks most of the time. You're distanced all the time. The only challenge was well, getting food and, and, and going to the bathroom, but they have some rules for that too. And so it worked out really well. So if you can get out and go get some skiing uh, before things warm up, that's what I recommend. So those are my recommendations for this week. Uh, wherever you are, get out, enjoy the sun. It was cloudy yesterday, but it was still a good time to, to bounce around the slopes. Be well in this strange time. We're not through this thing yet, but we're getting closer to the end. Take care. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments. And so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS or email them to CDSN.RCDS at Outlook.com. Thank you.